AVXL episode 172 was recorded on March 3rd, 2022. New TVs are finally tricking out. Bandcamp got bought. Sonos adds another Rome. Star Wars, Origin, Mythology, Yiddish Joy, and Kurosawa. What am I talking about? You're going to find out. Don't forget to email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you. Seriously, thank you. Thank you, thank you. To everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly donations make this show possible, and we really appreciate it. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AV Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear. No matter what your budget is, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. I should point out that I am not on any kind of a sedative. I'm just trying to speak at a normal human pace. I tend to talk fast in the opening of AV Excel. It mellows out as it goes along. (laughs) But that is a trend. That is a trend in the waveform, good sir. I see it every week. I bet you do. Uh, Okay, so CES, pre-CES this year, at CES this year, a lot of TVs announced. And as always, we wait. We wait, we wait. And now, at the beginning of March, we're starting to see a whole bunch of uh, Sony and LG OLED TVs showing up, the 2022 models. What's uh, what's the word on the latest from Sony that A95K OLED TV that we contemplated oh so many weeks ago? Well, if <laughs> I were just guessing by the coverage online, it looks like Sony and LG both held private meetings with the press to give the full hands-on tour of both of their lineups regarding the OLED TVs. And I'm sure some LCDs were there too, but just to focus on the OLEDs right now, Not as much information about the LG TVs. It's mainly just looking at features and relative performance, just literally side-by-side comparisons. One thing I really liked was Digital Trends took an early look at the Sony A95K that features that Samsung display QLED technology, that panel that everyone is so eager to get their hands on due to its improvement, that quote-unquote next-level OLED technology. Anyway, Caleb Dennison at Digital Trends did a early review of the new Sony A95K. He literally packed up his testing gear, got down to Sony's set, and checked it out. I'll quote him. He said, it is the most gorgeous picture ever. And (laughs) I'll leave it at that. He actually did, though, include some actual measurements with some pretty impressive results. The video on YouTube is definitely worth checking out if you're interested. And I am still checking to see if my budget will include an A95K in my near future. That was one thing in particular about this release from both uh, this this press tour, so to speak, with Sony and LG, mm-hmm. is that pricing is still not 100% fixed. Everyone's really wondering what the final street price or even the, the initial MSRP will be of these TVs. And I think we have a, at least a couple more weeks to wait. On that same note, I will say the LG 2021 TVs are still on sale at low prices. So if you feel like you have to buy right now and you need it, it's at least a good deal. At this point, are people anticipating that that QLED is going to be slightly more expensive than an OLED, vastly more expensive than an OLED, or at this point, we just have no freaking idea whatsoever? I'm predicting it will be the same or less, maybe, in the long run. But for Sony's premium offering for the 55 and 65-inch panels, especially if there's demand for it, like I'm anticipating there probably will be, I think it's going to maintain its premium price tag for as long as possible. 
I'll be curious to see on the trends in general if it has that nice reduction in price over the next six months to a year. And we get into some of the hopefully fall sales, maybe. We'll see. Everything indicates so far that Sony is not overly pricing the A95K as this relatively new piece of display technology, where I think they probably could get away with it. Uh, but again, uh, it'll be really nice when we actually have final pricing on these suckers. Put it in perspective, as it were. <laughs> I have this note here in the rundown. It says, Fortnite bought Bandcamp. And uh, I have no idea how I feel about this yet. A uh, very short blog post on EpicGames.com announced Bandcamp joining Epic Games to support fair, open platforms for artists and fans. Uh, Epic Games, which obviously is known for Fortnite, the Unreal Engine, which is a phenomenal piece of technology. And, oh, yeah, picking fights with Apple and Google over their app marketplaces. Or as uh, another PR announcement refers to them, champions for a fair and open Internet. In any case, right? The fight that Fortnite picked is over the VIG you have to pay if you're using uh, the Apple Store or the Google Store. That's the fair and open part. Uh, this gets complicated and legal, but Fortnite basically says, Fortnite, I have to stop that. Epic Games <laughs> yes. uh, says, I have to stop that. Epic Games says Bandcamp will play an important role in Epic's vision to build out a creator marketplace ecosystem for content, technology, games, art, music, and more. Uh, and the thing is, is, is Epic's fight uh, for a fair and uh, open internet is basically about the 30% charge or the 30% chunk that Apple takes and Google takes off of all payments made in their platform. Apple and Google basically believe that they created the marketplace. They deserve the 30%. And Epic was a, you know, a company that has enough revenue and enough mass and enough lawyers to take them on, primarily Apple. So Bandcamp has avoided sales on their mobile app just because it, that huge chunk of revenue that's taken out of, of every payment that runs through an app on the, uh, for example, uh, anything that runs on iOS. Bandcamp, if you haven't been paying attention, is a platform that is designed to get the closest thing possible as to a direct connection between bands and people who like music or musicians and people who want to purchase their music. Over on blog.bandcamp.com, Ethan Diamond, that's uh, Bandcamp's co-founder and CEO, he says, Bandcamp is joining Epic Games, that Bandcamp will keep operating as a standalone marketplace and music community, and I will continue to lead our team. The products and services you depend on aren't going anywhere. We'll continue to build Bandcamp around our artist-first revenue model, where artists net an average of 82% of every sale. Now, let me say this flat out. First of all, 82% of every sale is vastly more than anybody gets from any record company or, or record distribution deal anywhere, anytime, any place. period. Um, right. There's no physical medium. Uh, and more importantly, the, the thing that a lot of people have, have said over the years in different venues, whether they're talking about great big monster record company deals in the 70s rock star sense of it or you know, indie bands working on super small labels is that, you know, I like how Mike Watt put it. He said, we always thought of the albums as being, you know, flyers for the gigs and that they never really made any money off of the albums they sold. Uh, and they didn't really lose any money because they didn't, they didn't, they didn't spend a lot of money recording. I'm talking about uh, a band called Firehose, not Firehouse, Firehose, indie, not hair metal. Uh, and before that, the Minutemen, but he always said that they made their money on the tours. And that actually scales up to a lot of massive artists who never really made money off of the record deals because they were essentially getting screwed by the labels. 
in this case, like 82% of the, the revenue goes to the band. You know, I think 15% goes to Bandcamp and like 3% goes to credit card uh, charge overheads, if I'm not mistaken. The thing that Mr. Diamond adds is that behind the scenes, he says, we're working with Epic to expand internationally and push development forward across Bandcamp for basics like our album pages, mobile apps, merch tools, payment system, search and discovery features, newer initiatives like our vinyl pressing and live streaming services. Seriously, I'm hoping that Bandcamp keeps being awesome. It has been a place where I've discovered a bunch of new music or purchased a lot of new music. It is also a place where, especially for certain smaller bands, it's a way to buy the albums without having to, say, pay $150 for an incredibly rare CD, right? Uh, right. Call me cheap, but buying a 12-year-old CD for 130 bucks off eBay or Amazon versus paying the band directly, uh, you know, like 15 bucks on Bandcamp. I'm down with the flack files off Bandcamp. So I, I was kind of shocked by this. Um, obviously, uh, Apple has a music initiative, um, you know, now Fortnite does. I'm uh, sorry, I did it again. Epic Games does. I have to stop that. Uh, I'm I'm kind of curious to see where this goes, and I'm I'm not kidding. I really hope that uh, you know Bandcamp doesn't change in terms of you know how easy they make it to buy music from artists. So one of the artists I heard mention, and this was just a small independent, very small band that does kind of very creative content. Right. I believe they had a payment option available through Bandcamp where if you wanted, the, the album was free. But if you wanted to make a donation and pay, you could. Having that even available, I think, is really kind of neat just to say, hey, yeah. look, uh, rather than you you know try to find this anywhere, at least you have a centralized location to grab it. And if we're an up-and-coming struggling band, we can literally give it away if we want and ask for whatever, uh, you know, whatever people want to pay for it. And then, then, you know, the cuts go to Bandcamp and credit cards right. for charges and stuff like that. But still, they're getting a, a serious chunk of it. And the flexibility to offer their fans, you know, something yeah. for nothing, literally, if they want. It's interesting to watch because the ability to produce an album in your garage, in your house, in a studio, in a studio you built in your garage, your house. Uh, I've had friends that have been doing that for 30 years. Like the first time I, I ran into somebody that really produced something amazing um, in a non-studio setting was probably about 30 years ago. Wow, I'm old. The tools then were infinitely less expensive than the tools that were used in a recording school, but they were still prohibitively expensive for your average human being. Now, if you got a, you know, a hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks, you can put together a decent microphone and an analog to digital converter, and you can use, you know, free and open source software to record a multi-track album, which is extraordinary. Um, sure is. So, you know, uh, I hope Bandcamp keeps growing. I hope this is good for Bandcamp and uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Quick announcement from Sonos, the Rome SL. Essentially, it's the Rome portable Bluetooth speaker thing, except they strip the microphone out. Uh, drops 20 bucks off the price from the original Rome. So you can't do uh, Amazon. She who must not be named. I, I think I got that right for one of our listeners out there. Uh, alternately known as A-L-E-X-A or Google Assistant. Uh which is fine because the truth is it's supposed to be a Bluetooth speaker and it ties into Wi-Fi to work with your, your Sonos network in your house. But you can't, you know, really do Alexa or Google. Oops, sorry, everybody, uh, without Wi-Fi anyhow. But uh, quick heads up on that one. And you, uh, 
I laugh because this is on every laptop and desktop I own. But Rob wants to remind everybody. <laughs> Sonos. Speaking of Sonos, anyway, they actually have a control app for Windows and Mac OS PCs. And I found it. I, I kind of discovered it accidentally when I was comparing the features on the mobile app versus something else. And it turned out that, hey, Sonos themselves actually offers this desktop application. And it is a convenient way if you want to control your speakers from a notebook or a desktop computer. It just is, uh, <laughs> it's there, it's free to download, and it works pretty well. And yeah, uh, new to me this week. <laughs> yeah, Never occurred to me. <laughs> I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes if you are so curious and incapable of using Google to search for anything. It's just, it sometimes it never occurs to you. I also laugh because there's apps that I, I think definitely should have a desktop app and they don't. And I find that so frustrating. Um, if you love Star Wars, pour one out for Alan Ladd Jr. who passed this week. Uh, he optioned Star Wars after Universal refused it. He got into a big fight with Fox's board to actually get the movie made. Uh, you might remember Star Wars as having made quite a bit of money for Fox. Um, George Lucas uh, dropped some quotes for The Hollywood Reporter. He says, the only meeting I had with Laddie about the script, he said, look, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, but I trust you. Go ahead and make it. That was just honest, Lucas once said. I mean, it was a crazy movie. Now you can see it. You know what it is. But before you could see it, there wasn't anything like it. You couldn't explain it. You know, it was like this furry dog driving a spaceship. I mean, what is that? That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Which is, yeah, kind of crazy to think about. Uh, Alan Ladd helped movies like Young Frankenstein, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, The Omen, Breaking Away, Body Heat, Chariots of Fire, Blade Runner, and Moonstruck. I think all of which were nominated for Best Picture. Well, I can't imagine the Rocky Horror Picture Show was. Uh, I got to add, he was also, uh, he helped get uh, Police Academy, Spaceballs, Willow, A Fish Called Wanda, Rain Man, all made. Uh, you know, he's responsible for Alien, uh, having a female lead. You might remember Sigourney Weaver in that film. He greenlit Thelma and Louise. Extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary human being by all accounts. Uh, people loved him. And, uh it's uh i never realized he was involved in making all of those different movies possible so a shout out to alan ladd jr and a thank you for getting star wars uh out of george lucas's head and onto film where obviously it has impacted us all that's pretty amazing that list i realized that that was during the period of my life where i was in the movie theater a couple times yeah. a week literally and all, I, I, I want to say I've seen every one of those movies you mentioned. That's anyway impressive, and uh, that's just the highlights, right? I mean, it's kind of crazy that <laughs> Mr. Ladd himself. Oh my goodness, what a list! And more. Uh, go over to IMDb and, and look things up, or search around for uh, some of the things people have written about him this week. Got a quick email from Bailey. Says just an anecdote about sound systems. He just listened to episode 171. He says, I wanted to tell you that during the height of COVID restrictions last year, the comedy club in Atlantic City had outdoor parking lot shows. They had a stage. We all parked facing it, listened over our car radios. The sound quality, he says, was not suitable for music, but was okay for stand-up. Just a data point for you. Keep up the great work, Bill. And uh, thanks, Bill. Uh, thank you for the data point, and uh, thank you for the heads up on that. We uh, we had a question last week, and... Uh, 
someone is trying to figure out a way to have audio distributed over a car show without blowing out the ears and minds of the people that are closest to the speakers. And one of the things we talked about was, you know, what can you do with linking Bluetooth speakers and the possibility of low power FM, the legality of low power FM. And uh, thanks for the heads up on that bill. It works, people. Uh, just don't get arrested by the feds. <laughs> Heck yeah. We have a, a couple of emails I'm working on in part because uh, there are some challenges that people are dealing with, one of which involves dealing with Atmos in a small room, configuring things, and the fact that a person doesn't want to deal with tower speakers because of the size of the room. I want to point out to everybody, you know, I've got a set of speakers over there that are probably 50 inches tall. Um, they have built-in subwoofers with like thousand watt amplifiers. And the reality is, is while they are solid down to about 30 Hertz, they don't really go below 30 Hertz that much. Uh, or maybe I'm just testing them wrong. I bring that up because when you look at a quality bookshelf speaker or, uh, you know, a quality stand mount speaker, a smaller speaker, they often don't go below 50 Hertz. And what you use to make up that 30 to 50 Hertz for a bookshelf speaker is the same thing I would use to get down to, you know, 16 or 20 Hertz with these tower speakers I have, which is a subwoofer. So I like having these big speakers. Um, it is a, I've been using bookshelf speakers for almost my entire adult life. Uh, and to have a full tower speaker was something that I wanted to do at this stage of my existence. Cause I actually had the room to do it and I wasn't right. going to light them on fire because they were going to be next to a fireplace. Because uh, my home theater for years and years and years was in the same room, uh, kind of as the fireplace. Uh, you know, and, and we had a screen that dropped down and it covered all the nice things on the wall. It drove my family insane until the movie started. But remember that a lot of speakers that claim to be full range from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz are often, they start dropping off at, you know, 80 or 50 or 40 hertz. And a lot of times they've dropped off a cliff. Uh, you know, somewhere between 40 and 50 Hertz and, you know, a full range speaker that actually, you know, is, is a, that produces, they just don't sweat bookshelf speakers, especially if you have the chance to put a subwoofer in the room. I'm just going to leave it there. Exactly. Um, Smaller (laughs) speakers can handle mids and highs quite well. And the ability then to add in the sub to cover the rest, the lower frequencies, and have it do it effectively and literally break up that workload between yeah. letting the speakers literally do what they're best at in terms of that, that specific range of frequencies. Yeah. Bass is like literally anything between 20 hertz and 200 hertz. Anything below 70 hertz, let's say, 60 hertz is sub-bass or getting into infrasonic. Most bookshelf speakers have you covered from 50 hertz on up, or at least the quality ones. So don't sweat it. Yeah, in this particular email too, they were also asking about various power requirements for Europe. It's just something I haven't really looked up, but I'm curious to see if most AVRs that we find popular today are 100% compatible with switching between, say, a, a 110 volt system or a 120 volt system here in the United States versus something like 230, 240 in Europe. At least one major brand we deal with has completely separate lineups for 120 and 230 volts which is odd because a lot of other brands of 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 stereo or audio equipment i've run into handle both you know 120 or 230 volts but 
waiting to hear some information back on that. It's also yeah. really funny because it's not the easiest thing on many websites to figure out if, for example, an AVR is international. Correct. <laughs> it's voltage inputs. <laughs> and I'll ping this person back to get some more details on their specific right. needs. But one of their concerns, too, is they wanted wall-mounted speakers and as right. thin as possible. And yeah. that's where I'm a little less knowledgeable in. But one thing I was going to suggest right off the bat, and you can tell me if this is crazy or not, but they were initially kind of just uh, ignoring the soundbar option because of the fact that they have a display they like to rotate left and right, right. depending on where they're sitting in the room. And I was like, well, that's exactly what an articulated mount would do. And then if you're doing anything like that, you can easily add a universal kit to literally attach that soundbar to the bottom or in some cases, even the top of a TV. I think he's dealing with an OLED panel in this case. So you're not going to mount right. it above the TV, but it can hang right below it in a nice integrated bracket that then would allow you then to simply turn the audio along with the screen to face you no matter where you're sitting in the room. So I'm going to run that by them and I'll mention, yeah, of course the need for a subwoofer no matter what, just to, so if you are going to go with say a smaller <laughs> speaker option, that's more appropriate for this room that you're right. not going to miss out on any of the low frequency representation. It's there. And you're not trying to squeeze that kind of sound out of a speaker, not made for it to begin with. We'll follow it's up next a, week. Yeah. Never underestimate the power of a subwoofer. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Oh, I should point out, uh, one of the things we've talked about a lot over the last few years is RSL Speedwoofer. They have now, uh, they've essentially, they have run out of the, the Speedwoofer is done. Uh, the Speedwoofer 10S, the Mark II, is uh, going to be coming out uh, at the end of March, and pre-orders begin Friday, March 4th at 9 a.m. Pacific. So if you have dreamed of having an RSL Speedwoofer, um, head on over to rslspeakers.com and go check that out. Uh, Brett Butterworth, uh, I, I pinged Brett Butterworth about this. He's probably tested more subwoofers than any other human being alive at this point. And he's, uh, he's got one of the Speedwoofer 10S Mark IIs on the way. And I hope, I hope with every fiber of my being that it will be as awesome as the original Speedwoofer or better. But, uh, you know, that's one of the things we've we've kind of it, it has been interesting to see a bunch of vendors develop uh, series two or mark two or version two or three or four or whatever it is of various products. I think in small part because in many cases they are having to design updates to products because they can no longer get uh, components for some of the original uh, designs. I know a couple, I know some headphone amp manufacturers that have done that. I've had some speaker manufacturers that are dealing with that. So uh, I don't know if uh, if that's what's behind the RSL uh, Mark II, but the RSL speaker for 10S is discontinued and being replaced. That seems like a reasonable assumption. I mean, if the parts for your specific item are becoming yeah. increasingly difficult to get a hold of in source, that would be a good time to come up with a new product that uses easier to source components. <laughs> Either way. Or once you can source, period. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious here at the performances and, and see how it measures. Because they're basically claiming 
deeper bass, more deep bass, better dynamics, uh, and that they have dual modes of movie and music. So I'm kind of really curious about that. Like it's a 400 watt amplifier now, and uh, they have that. You know, they have a, a digital signal processor that switches between a music and movie mode, and the compression guide is now rear vented instead of front vented. Um, obviously, I'm curious. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully it is phenomenal as the original version was slash has been. Very oh, cool. Man. What are you watching? What are you watching this week? I am uh, finishing up a little Essential Craftsman on YouTube. This is a wonderful channel. And one of the main projects over the last few years on this channel has been this house build. They literally took a piece of land, an empty lot, and created a finished home within it. And this started back in 2017, and now nearly 150 videos later, it has finally come to the final house inspection. I believe it has passed inspection as of today. It was just a really interesting look at just about every aspect you could possibly imagine about literally <laughs> transforming a piece of dirt into something to live in. And it covers from everything. To house. Everything. I mean, from the uh, every aspect of it. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. It was pretty cool. And if you're into that sort of content, specifically home and building building, uh, check out a couple of other channels. One called RR Buildings and one called Perkins Builder Brothers. I find both of those are just utterly relaxing and fun to watch. Skilled individuals <laughs> doing really cool projects. But if you have ever contemplated building a house yourself with a blank piece of, literally with a blank slate to start with, uh, take a look at what the Essential Craftsman did over the last four years, literally, or more at this point, and those 150 videos. And that will give you a very good idea as to what it takes to get something like that done with the level of craft they were putting into it for this place too and it was also not only balancing the build but the budgeting and the time and the organization of it all in addition to things like you know getting that final inspection which is probably <laughs> in some cases probably the the least painful part for most cases i don't know who knows that could go horrible i guess this worked pretty well and actually they finished up that video with an interview with the house the home inspector and even that was a pretty interesting take on just how that person got into their line of work and really what their job entailed. It's been a wonderful series, and I can't believe it has been almost 150 videos on that uh, particular. That's pretty crazy. Particular series. But other aspects to that channel as well, including a podcast, uh, some of his custom craftsman work. He did some beautiful stuff for that home in addition to his own personal doings. Uh, if you're into... Uh, the anvil and the metal fabrication and things with wood and heavy equipment. It, it's got a little bit of everything, but the home builder series was just awesome. And I'll leave it at that. And also, yeah, like I mentioned, RR Buildings and Perkins Builder Brothers. If you ever need a little uh, weekend coffee sipping entertainment, that's pretty good stuff. Chillaxing, as it were. Yes. So I figured it was time for my oldest uh, to twig to the source of, you know, like 3,000 tropes in modern cinema. So we watched uh, The Seven Samurai this week, uh, 1954 Toho Studios. That would be uh, the epic samurai film from 
Kurosawa, who is a monster director. And, uh, of course, uh, one of the primary actors in that movie is Toshiro Mifune, who apparently was first seen by Kurosawa in an audition, a contest at Toho Studios. And uh, I'm, I, I quote a young man reeling around the room in a violent frenzy. It was as frightening as watching a wounded beast trying to break loose. I was transfixed. Um, Japanese samurai acting tend to being a little on the kabuki side, which is very in your face. Uh, they made 16 films together, including a couple of classics like Rashomon, Seven Samurai, The Hidden Fortress, Throne of Blood, Yahimbo. Seven Samurai has an excellent Criterion Edition Blu-ray. Uh, it's also streaming on CriterionChannel.com. A matter of fact, Rashomon, Ikiru, The Hidden Fortress, The Red Beard, and quite a few more Kurosawa movies are streaming on Criterion Channel. And this is not a commercial, but I just want to say, if you're into classic movies, they have apps on pretty much everything. Apple TV, Roku, Android TV, Fire TV, Xbox One, Samsung, Smart TV, iPhone, Android, uh, uh, your desktop browser. Uh, for 11 bucks a month, it's probably the best deal on classic movies you're ever going to find after your local library's Blu-ray collection. Speaking of classic movies, um, if you dig inside HBO Max, uh, Turner Classic Movies is buried in there, which has a bunch of other amazing movies. There is, I, I got to say, I, I, okay, I have a minor in film studies. I love classic movies. Um, there is just a ton of stuff on Criterion Channel streaming. And, uh, you know, speaking of classics, one of the things I'm also turning my kids on to is a lot of Chaplin's work. And you can stream The Kid, The Gold Rush, both the 1925 and 1942 versions, Satellites, Modern Times, The Great Dictator, and quite a few more. Worth checking out if you're into the classics. Also, a shout out to The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Season 4 just came out on Amazon Prime. I have unprintable word, outstanding writing, and unprintable word, outstanding acting. Really, really curious to see where the season ends up. It is about a... A uh, Jewish woman in New York City who becomes a comic uh, and, you know, is inspired by Lenny Bruce. They have a friendship. It's really, really fun to watch the actor that plays Lenny Bruce. Um, there's some extraordinary acting in this show and some utterly hysterical stuff. And uh, I've also had to explain a bunch of Yiddish to my son, which has been highly amusing, but uh, really uh -huh. kind of an amazing series. Yeah. What do you have a also, I'm still kind of WTF uh, over the, the last couple episodes of The Book of Boba Fett. A lot of interesting stuff in there, a lot of crossovers, and I can't say any more without one of you hunting me down and burning my house down while I'm inside of it, because I will, in case I drop a spoiler, but... Uh, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it continues to be fascinating to watch what pumps out on Disney+. Plus. Um, and if you're curious about that, uh, we mentioned... That uh, so Sono sued Google over patent uh, patent violations and uh, patent infringements, and Sonos won and uh, on all five patent uh, infringements they sued on. There's a really nice interview by Neil Patel on TheVerge.com that kind of gets into how Sonos has changed over the years, how they decide to do new products, how they've accelerated the product release process with their new CEO a few years ago. Um, but it's the CEO and chief counsel, and uh, it's an interesting conversation about, uh, you know, what they did, why they're doing it. And uh, it, if you're kind of, you know, this is obviously not a discussion of speaker placement or optimizing the output for your headphones. But, hey, uh, you know, patents are a big deal in uh, audio and home theater and you know battles between tech companies are going to continue to be a big deal whether we like it or not <laughs> see all of our discussions about when certain streaming apps disappear off certain platforms but uh you know 
uh, one of the things that was interesting for me to hear about was uh, the company, which has uh, just under 2,000 employees, two-thirds of those are pretty much working on software, and one-third of those are working on hardware, um, which is a reminder of how complicated software is. Because it's not like those speakers aren't very complicated. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. No. No. Minor tweaking. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can do it in your backyard. It's those Don't worry apps. about it. Your garage. Oh. Hey, what's uh, what's on Viff? I mentioned this very briefly, I believe, last week when I was talking about network-enabled security cameras. And it's one of those super handy features that you should find on just about any respectable quote-unquote IP security camera or something that uses a network connection in particular. ONVIF, O-N-V-I-F, stands for Open Network Video Interface Forum. And quoting from their mission statement, The cornerstones of ONVIF are standardization of communication between IP-based physical security products, interoperability regardless of the brand, and openness to all companies and organizations. One thing I will say is just about any camera at any price point supports this standard, and that provides then a way for your software to then communicate with the camera to provide controls, uh, optimizations, uh, basically any kind of tweaking you need to do you can be assured that as long as it's on VIF ready, that camera should be able to talk quite nicely with any piece of on VIF compatible software out there. It's a standard that's pretty much everywhere at this point, but it's just one to keep in mind. If for some reason a particular IP camera didn't feature on VIF support, which I can't imagine, that would be one I would avoid just because of how ubiquitous this service is and this standard is across the uh, entire security camera industry and it's there uh also too i i just casually mentioned that this one camera i was kind of interested in this particular samsung model was about 2500 bucks and i just wanted to quickly go over a couple of ideas or ways that why uh some cameras cost more than others and in that case it really came down to the uh Built-in AI functionality, that's kind of a new checkbox feature you're seeing added to just about everything out there. But the quality of that can vary quite wildly on different products. And also being a pan-tilt zoom design, something that can literally rotate and zoom in and out and look in just about any direction, that would add to the cost of a particular camera. And in line with that is also any kind of automated tracking functionality. That's another piece of code that they can then charge an extra fee for. And of course, some of the more basics, like your overall lens and build quality. Is that outdoor design really going to hold up over, say, five years or not? And in the case of warranty and support, man, it's nice to deal with a company that's just easy to get in touch with, easy to figure out if your device is still supported, easy to do an RMA, That makes a bigger deal if you're dealing with a large installation of particular cameras and just something to keep in mind of. And all of those go into what determines what the actual cost of a product will be. And in this day and age, everything's a little more expensive than it used to be. But those are a few of the things that go into making one camera cost a little bit more than another in particular. There you have it, people. Yeah. (laughs) On VIF and... uh, a good quality PTZ with tracking. Mm. So futuristic. So, uh, <laughs> 1984. <laughs> anyway, oh my goodness. No, not, not that. Hey. 
With that, ladies and gentlemen, we will uh, we will be back next week. Do us a favor. If you got a question for us, uh, email ask at avxl.com or tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at avxl. Of course, if you're a patron, thank you, patrons. Patreon.com slash avxl. Let me say that slowly. Patreon.com slash avxl. Uh, you, can, nice. you can message us on Patreon. Or you can tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at avxl. And if you need a hashtag, hashtag askavxl works just fine. But seriously, uh, thank you to all of our patrons, patreon.com slash avxl. Thank you for listening, and thank everybody who sends in questions. We appreciate it because you help guide the show and help us know what to talk about. So if you want to tell us what to talk about, ask us a question or send us a suggestion or an order. Or if you have something you want to share with the audience, just email us. We're lonely. Ask at avxl.com. Please. <laughs> please do. If you've been on the fence about contacting oh, us. Oh, my goodness. Throw us a line. With that, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.